Well, it is lovely to be with you. If you'd leave your Bibles open at that passage in Galatians 4, that's what we'll be looking through together over the next few minutes. Uh, but will you please join me as we pray and ask God to help us think uh, and wisely and respond faithfully to this passage? Let's pray. Father God, you have inspired all Scripture to be written through your prophets and apostles by your Spirit. We pray that that same Spirit would be at work in us now, taking this Word, showing us what it means, and planting it deep in our minds and our hearts, that we might love, serve, honour and trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... No one likes being trapped. I don't remember much of my childhood, um, but I do remember this one time in year four very, very vividly. Uh, I was at school, a little primary school in the southern suburbs of Sydney, and I'd left my classroom and I was on my way to the toilet. I need to go to the bathroom, and so I walked down the corridor past all the other classrooms, uh, past the administration block, and down a flight of stairs on my way to the toilet. And uh, in this flight of stairs, there were concrete walls on both sides, uh, but the one uh, facing outwards, where the stairs zigzag back and forwards, that wasn't a concrete wall, that was just metal bars. If they thought they needed to let the smell out or something, I don't know. Um, But the thing was that those bars happened to be the same width as my head. And so this particular day, and I've got no idea why I decided to do this, Perhaps I I thought it would be good to feel like I was in jail. I stuck my head through the bars. And you can imagine what happened when I tried to pull it back out. It got stuck. And I started to panic. And I started to shout for someone to come. But everyone was in class and no one could hear me. And so I got more and more panicked and started to to worry about what my friends were going to do and laugh at me when they found out I'd been stuck on my way to the bathroom. And... The the more I tried to struggle, the worse it just seemed to get. Until somehow, and I've still got no idea how this happened. Fortunately, they didn't have to call the fire department and cut the bars. I I don't know how I managed to get my head out, but I managed to get my head out and uh, continue uh, and told no one about it for weeks afterwards. No one likes to be trapped. And people get panicked and go to great lengths to be free, to get out of slavery and being trapped. And as we grow older, we find out it's not just the middle bars at primary school that can trap us anymore, is it? We can often feel trapped by lots of different things in our life. Uh, It could be relationships, it can be work and just be life circumstances. Things can make us feel trapped. And we can even feel trapped in our spiritual lives. I wonder if you've ever felt that. Trapped by a besetting sin that you just can't shake. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you pray, it just keeps coming back. Or perhaps you feel trapped in a relationship with God that you feel like it isn't what it should be. It's, you're there, you love him, but you just don't feel his presence like you should and you're just not quite sure what to do. You feel trapped. The promise of freedom is so enticing when you feel trapped. And that's the issue that Paul has been uh, confronting in this letter to the Galatians. See, uh, as you'll know, the Galatians had new teachers come after Paul had left and they're teaching new doctrine to them and they're teaching basically 
you can do something to make your relationship with God deeper and fuller and more authentic. All you've got to do is get circumcised. You know, you've got to come under the Mosaic covenant, the the, the agreement that God made with his people uh, at Sinai through Moses. If you do that, you will be a more holy Christian and you'll be free. You won't feel trapped anymore. And it was looking really attractive to these Galatians. Yet Paul in this letter is warning them, if you do that, if you go and get circumcised, if you think that you have to do this thing in order to be more right with God, to be more connected to God, not only will you not be free, you'll actually enslave yourself further. It'll be the opposite of the very thing that you want. And this is why this passage this morning before us is crucial. Our very freedom as Christians is at stake. Not our freedom in terms of how we operate in our society and whether we have the right to gather and the right to free speech and all that sort of stuff. Our freedom before God himself is at stake because this passage shows us that there can be very little things, things that seem innocuous, things that seem like they don't matter at all, that can rob us of our freedom that we have before God. And this passage uh, in uh, Galatians chapter 4 is perhaps the strangest passage in all of Galatians and maybe even in all of Paul because Paul seems to do things here with the Old Testament that we would get very nervous about doing. You know, I imagine if you were in a Bible study and you just read uh, Genesis 16 in your Bible study and then someone tried to start arguing the way Paul argues in Galatians 4 that there'd be some very frowny looks from people in your Bible study. And it's strange. We have to ask, how best do we actually think about approaching a passage like this? And the answer is actually the same way that you approach any passage, and that's to ask, what does the author want to do? What does Paul actually want to do? And we've already had our answer to that, have we? Paul wants to guard the people from getting circumcised. Paul wants to guard them against getting circumcised. And Paul's been arguing in the chapters before this, as you see, Uh, He's been pulling apart the promises to Abraham on the one hand and the law of Moses on the other hand. He says, you're under grace and not law. You know, the promise was given 430 years and the law doesn't set that aside. You're under this one, not that one. But if you know your Old Testaments, when was circumcision given? Was it given with Moses and the law or was it given with Abraham and the covenant to Abraham? It wasn't given with Moses, it was, it was given with Abraham. Now, if Paul wants to say to the Galatians, you can't get circumcised and circumcision is a dangerous thing, he can't just pull apart Moses and Abraham, he has to go further, do you see? He has to pull apart Abraham and circumcision. And that's what this passage is doing. It's his final step in his argument. And he makes this one big point in this passage. Christians are only free when we do not free ourselves. Christians are only free when we do not free ourselves. What Paul does is he takes uh, these two sons and he thinks about them historically first and then he starts to unpack their significance and we're going to take those steps in turn. So firstly, the two children. Because it really matters how many children Abraham had. It matters that he had more than one son. Because these two sons show us 
two ways of relating to God. Two sons, two ways of relating to God. Because as Paul opens up uh, this passage for us, he seems to start with quite a, a basic and mundane statement, doesn't he, in verse 22? Look at it there with me. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, if you remember much of Abraham's story, and we heard it in Genesis 16, you'll know that much of the stress of Abraham's life and much of the kind of narrative impetus for Abraham's story is where is the heir going to come from? Who's going to inherit the promises that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15? Where's this big family going to come from that we heard about with the kids? And it seems like it's impossible. And in the end, we hear in Genesis 16, as we just heard, that Abraham ends up with one son, Ishmael, at 86, and then a second son, Isaac, is born uh, when Abraham is around 100 years old. Abraham had two sons. You might think, well, that's not particularly groundbreaking. It's just kind of stating the historical fact. Why is that important? It's actually important for two reasons. Number one, both sons trace their lineage to Abraham. That is, they're both... Abraham's sons, right? They both come from his body. And secondly, both sons are circumcised. Ishmael is circumcised when he's 13, when God gives the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17. Isaac is circumcised when he's eight days old, as uh, the practice was, because he's born the year after the covenant is given. Two sons, both from Abraham, both circumcised, but only one receives the inheritance of the promise. Genesis is very, very clear on this fact. Only Isaac inherits. Ishmael is blessed. He's blessed here in Genesis 16, but he doesn't inherit the promise. Two sons, but only one inherits. So these two sons, if they're both from Abraham's body, then being Abraham's physical family doesn't mean you inherit If they're both circumcised but only one inherits, it means that circumcision doesn't guarantee you an inheritance. You see why Paul is now saying this. But the question then becomes, it's an obvious one, what does make the difference? If Abraham had two sons and they were both from his body and they were both circumcised but only one inherited, why? What's the difference between Ishmael on the one hand and Isaac on the other hand? And this is exactly what Paul draws out as he continues on. He starts with the fact that Ishmael is born to a slave woman and becomes therefore a slave. Isaac is born to a free woman and therefore uh, becomes a free person. Even more important than that, it's the way that these births came about that is central for thinking about their difference. So listen to the differences in verse 23. One, the child of the slave was born according to the flesh. The other, the child of the free woman, was born through the promise. One fundamental difference between Isaac and Ishmael, do you see? Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Isaac was born according to the promise. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Now, you could take that to be just, that's the natural way that babies always come. You kind of, you have to be born according to the flesh if you're going to be born. But we've seen in Galatians that the word flesh is always negative, It's always a way of being in rebellion against God. And what Paul is talking about here is the fact that Abraham and Sarah tried to do something to force God's hand. 
They worked according to the flesh. They tried to do something to say, well, we've done something now, therefore, God, you need to turn up to the party as well. That's exactly what we heard in Genesis 16. Abraham and Sarah were impatient. They'd been in the land for 10 years. They'd had these promises for years even before that, and there's still no heir. So what do they do? They get Hagar involved. They try and force God's hand. They try and do something so that God has to respond in a certain way. And yes, they get Ishmael out of it, but does it work? No, because Ishmael doesn't inherit the promises. This is working according to the flesh, doing something to think that you can have an influence over God and his work on the, by the flesh on the one hand. But there's another son, isn't there? Isaac, the one born through the promise. Because Sarah is dead right in Genesis 16, where she says, God has closed up my womb. God deliberately held off Sarah's children until Sarah was 90 years old so that it was abundantly clear that that child came only purely and fully from the work of God and not because of the work of anything else. God has made it abundantly clear that Isaac is born purely through the promise And it's not something that even the amazing Abraham could force God to do. It's important to notice here that uh, both of Abraham's sons are part of God's design and plan. See, did Abraham and Sarah sin by trying to force God's hand and getting Hagar involved? Absolutely. That was an act of uh, disbelief in God at that point. But God not only used that, but planned that so that it would be clear to us that Abraham had two sons. So that we could see very clearly that you don't inherit, you're not part of Abraham's family by trying to force your way in, by trying to do things to force God's hand. You see, God had planned even Ishmael. God was working even in the rebellion of his people. So that 3,000 years later on the other side of the planet, we could hear that there's only one thing that determines whether you're part of God's people or not. It's purely down to God's choice. See, a lot of people claim that there are lots of different ways to be right with God, don't they? Uh, we've, we've got metaphors in our current world about you know, lots of paths up, up to the top of the mountain, lots of different ways of describing the elephant, all these kind of things. But really, in the end, every approach to God boils down to one of two simple ways. Either you do something and you think, therefore, God has to do something for you, that God owes you in some way. Or you say, actually, I don't bring anything to God, but he is still kind and gracious to me. That's it. That's all there is. That's the only two ways that you can relate to God. And the fact that Abraham had two sons shows us that only one of those works. And it's not the one where we think we can shape God by our actions. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? That even in the birth of these two sons, that God was already picturing the gospel. That God, from the very beginning of his dealings with his people, 
showed that being saved and being part of his people comes freely from his hand alone. Now, Paul is not done with his argument. Paul keeps going on because what Paul notices is there's these patterns of pairs, just like there are two sons and two mothers. There are two mountains. There are two Jerusalems. There are all these patterns of pairs, and Paul traces these uh, through the rest of the passage and to show this point that slavery always awaits those who try and force God's hand. Slavery awaits those who force God's hand, but God freely gives grace to those who do nothing for their own salvation. So if you look at me, uh, look with me at verse 24, Paul uh, has, is done with his description of the two sons and he's going to start to unpack the significance of them. And he uses these words that we might find a little bit unsettling. Now this is an allegory. Now we might find this a little bit unsettling because we don't tend to read the Bible allegorically as a, as a picture of something else. And lots of Christians throughout church history have read the Bible allegorically. Uh, one very famous one is the 5th century Christian leader Augustine. Uh, he read lots of the Bible alleg- allegorically. So, for instance, he gets to uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan in, in Luke 11, you know, uh, where the man travels to Jerusalem and he's uh, uh, mugged on the way and then it's only the Samaritan who helps him. The Samaritan takes him to an inn, uh, finds an innkeeper, gives the innkeeper a couple of coins to look after the man and then goes on his way. And, you know, Jesus' point is, you're, you have to be a neighbour to other people no matter who they are, right? That's, that's the point of the parable. Augustine looks at the parable and he, he goes through lots of things and he gets to the end and he goes, oh, that innkeeper, that's the Apostle Paul. You think, hang on, that seems very odd. How can he get the Apostle Paul out of, out of this story? And then he goes further and he says, you know those two coins that uh, the man gave to the innkeeper, those are the, the two great love commands, to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. Oh, that's a little bit wacky, isn't it? We don't tend to read the Bible like that. That seems arbitrary. And that's what allegory means to us. It's kind of this arbitrary, symbolic reading of of the Bible. And so we see Paul here say, uh, you know, these these things are an allegory. And we think, oh, okay, maybe Paul can get away with it because he's the apostle and he's inspired by God. But I can't do that, can I? I mean, I think if if one of my students in in a class turned in a paper that had an allegorical reading, I would get out the red pen. I normally mark in green because it makes me less grumpy, but I'd get out the red one for that. But what Paul means when he says these things are allegory is not that there's an, an, an arbitrary interpretation. What he means is that these things are symbol laden, that they are symbolic of greater realities. And that's what he goes on to show Verse 24, these women are two covenants. These two women, Hagar and Sarah, represent two covenants. One gives birth to children who are slaves, just like Hagar gave birth to a child who became a slave. One gives birth to children who are free, just like Sarah gave birth to children who are free. And Paul maps the first one, Hagar, to the covenant that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai because both result in children who are slaves. And then Paul draws the connecting line further and says, that connects to the current Jerusalem, which is enslaved with her children. And you might think, well, that's that's a little bit strange. I mean, if you you go and read 
uh, Exodus, what happens with the, with the people of Israel enslaved before or after the Exodus? Although they were in slavery in Egypt, weren't they? They got pulled out of slavery when, in the Exodus. Don't they become free when they get to Mount Sinai rather than becoming slaves? How can, God, how can Paul say here that they become slaves? This would have outraged any ancient Jew reading Paul at this point. But what we need to see is that Paul is not reading this arbitrarily. He's not reading this just randomly. What he's actually doing is he's reading Isaiah and thinking about Genesis in terms of Isaiah. Because that's why uh, at the bottom right-hand page of your pew Bible there, there is a quote, and it comes from Isaiah 54. See, in Isaiah, especially from chapters 49 uh, to 55, Isaiah pictures two women, and they represent two different Jerusalems. And for much of Isaiah 50 and 51 and 52, Isaiah keeps saying, Jerusalem, you're enslaved, you're in shackles. At one point, he even says that uh, your captors come and order you to lie on the ground so that they may walk over you. They're that humiliated and enslaved. And during Isaiah's time, he's looking forward to the Babylonian captivity when they actually would be physically and literally enslaved. And yet even in Isaiah, there's this picture of a fuller, bigger enslaving to sin. And that's why they went to Babylon as punishment for that sin. But Isaiah also pictures a second Jerusalem. A Jerusalem who is free and liberated because of the work of the servant. You know, the suffering servant. If you've ever listened to much Colin Buchanan, you'll know the suffering servant because as we all like sheep have gone astray. Baba do baba, for those of you who know that, right? That there's this one figure in Isaiah who gives his life for the sins of people and frees Jerusalem. And so you end up with two Jerusalems side by side, an enslaved one before the servant comes and a free one after the servant comes. And that's this, this, these two Jerusalems, that's what Paul is picking up on in his quote from Isaiah 54. This is in verse 27 of our passage in Galatians. Rejoice, you childless one. Uh, you who bear no children burst into song and shout. You who endure no birth pains. For the children of the desolate woman are more numerous than the children of the one who is married. The thing to ask here is this. How can a desolate woman have more children than a married woman? How can a barren woman, a woman who's never experienced the pangs of birth, how can they possibly have more children than a, a woman who is married? Well, there's, there's more than one way to welcome children into a family, isn't there? There's the normal way, the by-the-flesh way, but there's also adoption. You can welcome children into a family by adoption, and that's what's happening here. That's the picture that Isaiah actually shows, that when these children turn up to the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem doesn't recognize them. She says, who are these children? I haven't, I haven't begotten these children because they're adopted. And adoption is such a brilliant picture, and it's why Paul picks it up, of what he's talking about in this passage. Because adoption relies completely on the choice of the parent doesn't it? I mean, we've just had the Queen's Jubilee, and I'm sure that many of, many of you have sat and watched uh, the concerts uh, and the parades and all of that sort of stuff. Now, can you imagine in the, in the midst of the Jubilee concert, 
someone running up to the gates of Buckingham Palace and, and rapping on the gates and shouting out, I demand that you adopt me, Queen Elizabeth. I deserve to be one of your children. What's going to happen to that person? Like, likely going to get shot on sight. Yeah, no, well, they'll be taken away, but you get the point, right? Then they're going to be treated as it's insane to try and turn up and demand adoption from someone. Now, of course, Elizabeth's well within her rights to, to adopt someone, but it's got to be on her choice. No one can demand and say, I've been the most loyal British subject that you've ever had, and therefore I have to be part of your family. It's insanity to think that a person could turn up to the gates of Buckingham Palace and demand adoption. So why is it, friends, that so many people turn up to the gates of heaven and think that they can demand adoption because of their good things that they have done from the king of heaven and earth? That they turn up to the Lord of all creation and say, I've been spiritual enough, I've been moral enough, I've been authentic enough, I've gone to church, I've lived the right life, I've done these things, I have to be in your family. That's not how adoption works. And that's Paul's point. God throughout history has set up this pattern of pairs. Two women, two sons, two covenants, to Jerusalem's, to show us this very clear thing. Genesis shows us, Isaiah shows us, Paul shows us that you can't become a true child of Abraham by being physically part of his family. That you can't become a true child of Abraham by being circumcised and obeying the Mosaic Covenant. That you can't become a true child of Abraham by anything that you do. Anything that we try and do to force God's hand is only going to ever end up in slavery. There is one and only one way to be involved in the promises of God, and that is through God's choice alone. And that is what makes us free. We are only free when we don't free ourselves, do you see? And the rest of uh, Galatians that you'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks, Paul lays out what this freedom looks like and the way that free people always will live. But even in this passage, there's two implications, one positive, one negative, and we'll finish our time briefly by considering. So firstly, the positive in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. We stand firm in our freedom. Because you might be sitting here and thinking, Dan, that's all well and good, that's lovely. It sounds quite nice that I don't have to do anything to force God into him becoming, me becoming part of his family. That sounds great. But how can I actually do that? How can I become part of his family if it's purely on his choice and it's nothing that I do? And this friend is what makes the message of Jesus so wonderful, isn't it? Because the message of Jesus is that God has already done absolutely everything you need to become part of his family. He sent his son into this world, born of a woman, born under law, as we've heard already in Galatians, so that we might be adopted into his family. There is nothing that we can do. To kind of push the adoption metaphor a little bit further, the adoption papers have already been signed by your father and they're just waiting for you 
to pick them up. That's all that there is left to do. Those papers are available for everyone who comes and admits that there is nothing that we can do to deserve to be part of God's family. So let me ask you directly, is that something that you've done? Whether you've sat in church your whole life or this is, uh, you're relatively new to this whole Christian thing, whether you've tried to live an upstanding life or your life's been a bit of a mess, God has worked through millennia of history to make it clear time and time again, we are only saved by grace, by his undeserving love and uh, choice of us. That's the positive side. What about the negative side? It's possible, and this is the danger that the Galatians were facing, it's possible to experience the freedom of God and actually turn back to slavery. To know the freedom of God and yet give that all away. For the Galatians, this came, as we've heard, in the form of circumcision. They were trying to do something to force God's hands. This is what the teachers had come and said. They said, yeah, that's great. You've got this relationship with God. If you get circumcised, you will have a much deeper relationship with God. You do something and God will have to do something in return. And if, that, if they approached that, if they did that, and this is why circumcision became so dangerous, if they did that, Paul says in the next verse, in verse 2, uh, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Jesus will, and what he did, who he was, will have absolutely no benefit for you if you try and force God's hand. That's the warning of this passage. It's not easy, because it's always tempting to want to try and force God's hand. And just like uh, Isaac uh, and Ishmael uh, didn't get along when they were older, so also those who think that you can force God's hand will always uh, try and force those who rely on the free grace of God to, to try the other way. Now, uh, I was chatting to some of the people after the first service and you know, kind of one of the topics of conversation was no one's really tempted to be circumcised these days. And, th- and that's true. Our temptation, the things that we are tempted to do to force God's hand, isn't circumcision. But it's things that are good things like reading your Bible and praying. I mean, imagine you had a day, you woke up early, you had a busy day, so you got straight into it. You know, you took your dog for a walk because you need to get the dog for a walk. Uh, You get out the door early, you get to work, you get to lunchtime, things are just falling apart all over the place. And you stop at your lunch and you say, I know what's gone wrong. I forgot to say my prayers this morning. Or on the other way around, you you have your your quiet time at the beginning of the day and you think, ah, God is going to bless my day today because I have done this thing. That's working according to the flesh. That's the very thing that Paul is warning us against here. Now, of course, reading your Bible and praying are brilliant things to do. But the moment that that slips into, God now will do something for me because I have done this thing. That's throwing away the gospel. If it's reading your Bible, even if it's giving to church, this is a teaching that has become unfortunately very widespread. If if you give to the church, God will bless you. That's the same thing. Anything that we think that we do in order to force God to do something for us, 
is working according to the flesh. It could be bigger things. I'm a moral person. I'm an authentic person, a spiritual person. Therefore, God must welcome me into heaven. That's not how it works. Abraham had two sons, but only one inherited. The question is then, which one are you going to be like? Are you going to be the son who works according to the promise or the son who tries to work according to the flesh? Paul says, stand firm, stand firm in your freedom. Don't give in to wanting to try to force God's hand. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Amen.